We human beings love shortcuts. If we can find a shortcut to achieve something or to get somewhere, we'll use it. For example, we might go through a parking lot or a service road or a certain street if it means we can walk or drive to our destination quicker. It's an easy shortcut to reheat food in the microwave versus heating the food on the stove or in the oven. We might read a detailed synopsis of a book or film rather than reading or watching the whole thing. We might take an accelerated course versus a semester-long course in order to get the credits quicker. We might listen to a podcast or audiobook at a quicker speed so that we can get through the content in a shorter amount of time. We give people nicknames because they're quicker to say, and we abbreviate other words like refrigerator to fridge or air conditioning to AC in order to get our point across quicker. Even computers and keyboards have shortcuts. You can press Control S to save something, or press Control P to print something, or press Control Plus to enlarge the text on your screen, or press Control Minus to reduce the text on the screen, and many more. Even when it comes to our health and fitness, we seek out shortcuts. How many advertisements have we seen for workouts or diets or pills which claim to help us get fitter in a shorter amount of time or with less strenuous effort? At the end of the day, shortcuts are popular because they help us reduce our effort, which helps us to conserve energy, and they help us to reduce the time it takes to do something which is valuable because time is a finite resource for us. One area of life where you don't think of shortcuts, though, is in the realm of religion and spirituality. Can you even imagine what it would be like to have a shortcut to achieving inner peace or spiritual growth or divine communion or enlightenment? Traditionally, achieving any of these or any other spiritual goal is portrayed as being formidable, challenging, and time-consuming. It's for that reason that in every society, we designate certain people, like monks, nuns, priests, ministers, gurus, rabbis, and philosophers, with the task of dedicating oneself to inner growth because we imagine that only a person who pursues these activities full-time would have any chance of succeeding. Even if you go through the back of our hymnal to see who the authors are of the readings there, you're going to mostly find people whose religious vocation was that person's primary task. And none of those people are known to have taken a shortcut. People like Isaiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Siddhartha Gautama, Rumi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Thich Nhat Hanh. Their teachings and hard work still resonate with us, and it's hard to imagine how one could take a shortcut to achieving even half of what they did. And yet, because we humans are wise and crafty, 
besides also ambitious and compelled to invent new shortcuts, some researchers are actually conducting research to create a shortcut that could allow anyone to have a religious experience without the effort or use of conventional religious practices, which is another way of saying that researchers are finding evidence that there are ways that one could achieve the benefits of meditation without actually meditating. I recently learned about this research thanks to a short documentary film by the contemporary Lithuanian film director based in New York, Lena Light. Her film called Hacking Enlightenment is about the work of two scientific researchers, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, who is a neuroscientist, philosopher, and cognitive psychologist, and Shinzen Young, a lab co-director and Zen monk, who work at a research lab at the University of Arizona that focuses on enhanced mindful awareness. The film starts with Dr. Sanguinetti sharing how once, at a Society for Neuroscience meeting he attended, he heard an interview with the Dalai Lama, who said that if neuroscientists could create an intervention to give him the effects of meditating without meditation, he would be the first person to sign up. As a way of starting the film, it provides a startling way of introducing the topic because when one is introduced to the idea of being able to hack enlightenment through a neuroscience intervention, the automatic response or reaction is to be skeptical or to reject the intervention as completely artificial. But hearing the Dalai Lama express enthusiasm for the neuroscience intervention grants it more legitimacy. While Dr. Sanguinetti was still a graduate student, he took a class with Shinzen Young, who inspired him to want to do further research into what can we know about brain activity that would explain to us how consciousness emerges. Through research at their lab in Tucson, they developed a neuroscience intervention which can best be described as non-invasive brain stimulation, using ultrasound waves for the purpose of increasing the sensations one typically experiences while deep in meditation. The technology of the intervention is described this way. Quote, what we're targeting with ultrasound is quieting a brain network that is active in all of us. And when it's active, it's focused on negative self-focused thoughts. And these thoughts cause people distress. We seem to be disrupting the activity of that network with the ultrasound, giving it just a little bit less of an ability to organize again." End quote. The brain stimulation lasts for five minutes, after which one spends 20 minutes just doing quiet time. And after that, the person can experience a different kind of sensation or awareness, like the deeper states of meditation. Unlike psychotropic drugs, ultrasound targets a very specific region of the brain that has a very specific effect on this default mode network. The research scientist also clearly states that this is not a high. It should be a therapeutic tool. 
The filmmaker then shows two people receiving the intervention. And one said that, quote, I was able to sink into equanimity very quickly, end quote. Another described his experience in the moment by saying, quote, everything is so vivid that it's a kind of nothing. He then laughs and continues, that's why you just laugh. It's very big and very small, very rich and very thin, exactly at the same time, end quote. As someone who's studied religious experiences, I found these descriptions to be very interesting and very stunning. For example, the idea that one could actually achieve a sense of equanimity in a 20-minute office visit is stunning. Equanimity is the sense of perfect mental calmness, composure, and self-possession, even in the midst of difficulties. The ancient Stoics said that equanimity is achieved by creating a difference in one's mind between the emotions that an activating event generates and the reaction that one has. If one can practice acceptance of the way things are and not attach a judgmental reaction to an event that dis displeases us, then we can achieve mental calmness and equanimity, says the Stoic. The ancient Epicureans taught their followers that pleasure is the supreme good, and the way one increases pleasure in one's life is to live modestly, to gain knowledge of the workings of the world, and to limit one's desire. And by doing this, one would achieve equanimity. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as being abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And the way one achieves this level of equanimity is through meditation. None of these pathways to equanimity come naturally to anyone and all require ongoing self-reflection and dedication. So it's stunning that this level of inner peace can be created in an office visit using ultrasound waves. Another point about the descriptions of the intervention is when the person described it using paradoxical pairings like vivid and nothing, or very big and very small, very rich and very thin, exactly at the same time. These types of paradoxical pairings are notable because they're so descriptive and yet so unimaginable. When mystics of any background or creed experience any kind of mystical vision, the mystic will later report how challenging it is to translate that mystical experience or message into human language. How can a person describe the sublime the holy other, in any kind of intelligible human words. Paradox is perhaps one of the most accurate ways that one could describe the indescribable. This kind of paradoxical language for the indescribable reminds me of a form of Christian theology called apophatic theology. In this form of theology, which has medieval roots, 
God's absolute transcendence and unknowability is such that we cannot say anything about the divine essence because God is so completely beyond being. For example, God is both transcendent and imminent, which is to say God is here and also beyond here. God is knowable, and yet God is unknowable. The ninth century philosopher John the Scot wrote, quote, we do not know what God is. God himself does not know what he is because he is not anything, which is to say, not any created thing. Literally, God is not because he transcends being, end quote. That level of paradoxical divine unknowability requires a deep level of philosophical sophistication to understand and experience. So it's stunning and incredible that someone might achieve a kind of mystical awareness of the paradoxical nature of ultimate reality through an artificially stimulated mindfulness. As with any kind of technological advance, there are ethical concerns, which the research scientists acknowledge. Dr. Sanguinetti asks, quote, as I create technology that helps you feel happier, does that reduce your ability to make good decisions? And how do we define good decisions? He also said that he ended up rejecting deals with Silicon Valley investors who expressed interest in commercializing his research right away. He said, quote, I don't have anything wrong with money, but I understand it has a corrupting influence and that may set up a relatively dangerous kind of brain stimulation system. It wouldn't be right at this point to create something that you sell on Amazon and tell people to use it every day because we just don't know if that's safe as a scientist, end quote. Despite the potential drawbacks and uncertainties, the researchers feel committed to their work. Shinzen Young acknowledged that, quote, this technology scares me, and the future without a radical improvement really scares me a lot, a lot more. So that's why we've got to democratize enlightenment. We hope that this technology will have huge positive benefits in terms of human happiness, reduction of suffering, elevation of fulfillment, self-understanding, positive behavioral change, and ultimately, a call to service is where we want this technology to culminate." End quote. As people of faith, we seek to heed that call of service and to support one another in our search and practice of equanimity in our spiritual lives. The idea that one could achieve that sense through a targeted brain stimulation, if the research continues to demonstrate that that's true, then that will be a significant challenge to our received wisdom across traditions which prioritize rigorous spiritual practices as the means of achieving equanimity. But perhaps one or 200 years in the future, 
going to brain stimulation sessions will be almost like a new kind of sacrament, a way of mediating through a ritual, a means of achieving otherworldly grace and peace of mind. Because we don't live in that world just yet, if we ever actually do, we will have to content ourselves with the same technologies that the ancient psalmist wrote about, whose words we heard earlier this morning, who used the meditation of his heart as a way of achieving understanding, who is attentive to wisdom and understanding and to the beauty of music. These are the same things we do each Sunday and which will continue to serve us well while we seek enlightenment the long way. <laughs>